0: Hello, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I am your host, Joe Hellerstein.
1: And I'm Jeffrey Hare, and I'm excited to have Hadley Wickham on the podcast today. We're going to talk about data science tools and also quite a bit about tidy data. Joe, what have you been keeping tidy lately?
0: Well, you know, (laughs) it's funny you ask, Jeff. Um, If you can see me, if this is on video, I have my uh, semi was maybe monthly COVID haircut which is to say i go out on the porch and i have this hockey puck thing and i i like zip my head with it and um you know it's pretty good i kind of like the tidy hair thing it's working for me so uh I, I hope this is all on point today as we talk to hadley and uh his leadership on things like tidy data so that does bring us to our guest let me introduce him properly hadley wickham is the chief scientist at our studio he's an adjunct professor of statistics at the University of Auckland, at Stanford University, and at Rice University, which is a lot of masters to please, so that's impressive. He must avoid administrative work at all of these places very assiduously. Uh, (laughs) Hadley's well known for building computational and cognitive tools that make data science easier, faster, and more fun. He's a stalwart figure in the R community, and we're super happy to have him today. Welcome, Hadley.
1: Thanks for having me. So, Hadley, we have um, listeners from a variety of backgrounds, and so I thought to kick things off, for those who are less familiar with R, what is the Tidyverse?
2: So, the the Tidyverse is uh, basically a collection of uh, R packages or or libraries uh, for doing various parts of helping out various parts of the the data science process. So, they've kind of, like the individual packages kind of evolved for a long time independently. Uh, like ggplot2 for visualizing data and, uh, dd, dplyr for manipulating data. And, you know, after working on them for quite a few years, I kind of realized, oh, actually all of these things kind of like fit together and it would be good to have a name, um, a name for them. And, and, and people had already started using a name for them, which they, they called the Hadleyverse, um, which <laughs> I can barely say with a straight face. And I could certainly <laughs> never like promote. Um, so I really wanted to also come up with a name that didn't sound like so self-aggrandizing. So the, the idea of the tidyverse really, you know, collection of packages that share some kind of, you know, deep philosophical ideas of the idea, like that once you've learned one of them, picking up the next will be a little bit easier because there's a bunch of shared structure and, and ideas and philosophy.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. So you're one of the leading advocates uh, in the data science community for data hygiene uh, and this idea of tidy data. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's awesome to see, uh, the success you've had in kind of galvanizing a community around what others might think is a pretty dry topic. Um, yeah. you know, honestly, uh, as a database guy coming from the relational database world, my first job was, uh, working for IBM on relational database infrastructure, um, it's really heartening to see somebody like you from the stats community come forward and explain concepts of um, normal forms and sort of relational operations to statisticians. So maybe for our listeners who come from a mix of backgrounds, you can tell us what you think of as tidy data and why it's important, why they should know about it. So
2: tidy data is basically uh, just a way of structuring your rectangular data where you put variables in... Columns and then your rows become observations. And, and that's, and that's basically it. Uh, if you, and if you do that, then your life becomes much, much easier because now you've got this consistent way of recording your variables and your observations. And then hence all of the tools you use, you're not kind of constantly fighting to get the data into the form that that specific tool wants. You've just got the standard form that pretty much everyone can use, which is.
0: So let me, let me stop you right there and just. For the benefit of our listeners, so to repeat, you said rows are observations, columns are variables.
2: Now, if if you want to get more precise than that, it's 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 like really hard to define exactly what a variable is or exactly what an observation is. Um, But generally, you know, if you've like worked with data a little bit, your kind of your basic conception of what a variable is and observation is sort of enough to for your for you to be able to use that.
0: So, so coming from the world of stats though, like, like what would have been the alternative? What did people do when they didn't do every row is an observation and every column? I mean,
2: basically anything, um, anything you can imagine, basically, and, and, and many, <laughs> many things that you, you could not imagine. <laughs> um, you know, basically people collect data in the way that is most convenient for them to collect. And, you know, when you do tidy data or normalized data, that, that often produces a lot of duplication. And typically, when people are recording the data, they want to eliminate as that duplication as much as possible. You know, typically by putting like values in variables and spreading things out kind of much wider than you'd, you'd normally want in a in a in a tidy form. And I, I think really both like in some ways, I think kind of both statistics and you know the database community have actually failed to communicate to people like to teach people like if you actually want to work with data. Like it doesn't really matter how you collect it, but this is the form you're going to want to get it into to actually actually work with it. Uh, I think statistics has got like a little bit better at sort of touching on some of this, and but but still like you know in the stat one hundred and one class you like learn how to do a t test, which you know like you know whatever. But your life would be much better if you learned actually how to like collect data and then organize it into a form that you could then work with later on. It's a sort of weird blind spot, I think.
1: So one of the things I love about tidy data is not just because it's good for your data, uh, but particularly when you look beyond relational databases where a certain organization is sort of, you know, you're pushed to, to, to model your data in a particular way by, by that uh, formalism. Um, when you get beyond that into these other tools, I really like how tidy data provides a social contract amongst the tools. And so it's, you know, not just about the data itself, but I remember back in the day when I, you know, in tools I won't mention, but if I wanted to go from a between-subjects analysis to one with repeated measures, I had to completely reshape my data for the tool to even allow me to run that analysis. And so the idea that the tools can expect a certain format that allows the level of operability that you've explored in, you know, the Tidyverse and, and elsewhere, I think is really valuable in just enabling a much easier data science workflows.
2: Yeah. And I think that that being like forced very early on, like picking your data structure because of the analysis you think you want to do or the visualization you think you want to do that, that's just, you know, I think that that does not lead to good like science because you make, you end up making these decisions far too early before you even know like what you might want to do. And then by the time you get to that point and you're like, Oh, actually, this isn't what I want. You're like trapped in this, this format that would be really painful to, to get out of.
0: So I want to share a little story. I had a team teaching data science with a statistician uh, with a colleague at Berkeley who shall run in Maine nameless. Um, And I uh, gave a lecture to the students about tidy data and about um, relations and um, how they relate to things like, you know, other ways of representing data. My stats colleague afterwards told me how surprised they were that the lecture was so interesting because of course, (laughs) they said, they were trained with mathematics and in mathematics, we have matrices. Yeah. To which I responded, well, I think set theory is part of mathematics. And, uh, you know. But I'm curious, like uh, a lot of statisticians are coming from the world of linear algebra and matrices. And tidy data, is that a matrix or not?
2: It's not. And to me, I think one of the distinctions in some ways between statistics and data science is that statistics is kind of about matrices and data science is about like data frames or, or tables or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, you know, whenever you end up doing any kind of statistical model, you've got to go from that data frame into a matrix. Like every, you know, all of the math is in in matrix, but that matrices, but that process of going from the data frame to the matrix, I think is, is, is really, really important. I mean, that's like basically all of, all of feature engineering. And if you're just thinking on that like very end part, I've got a matrix, you like miss out on a a bunch of other really important parts of the, the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like to talk about how, you know, there's linear algebra and relational algebra, and you need to know both. And and then you need to be able to convert representations between them. So t- tell me a little bit in tidyverse, when you get people into their tidy data, how do you get into and out of other stat packages?
2: Yeah, I mean, that that's something we invested um, quite a lot of time in. And, and of course, like by other stat packages, I think you also have to talk about the most the most popular analysis platform in the world, which is obviously Microsoft Excel. Um, also like really, really important to get data in and out of that. Um, so, so we have like quite a few tools. Um, so a few years ago, I kind of sat down and thought, well, actually, you know, you, you can't do data analysis in R unless you can get your data into R and the chances of you having like a nice clean CSV are actually relatively small it's the data's in a database it's behind an api you might need to scrape it up a website you you know you might have a directory that's got 400 excel spreadsheets each of which you need to pull six numbers out of like this this whole like the the way that data gets to you uh is a is a you know just a a massive challenge too and i think that's like kind of one of the places where um like you know being in a programming language is useful because it's not, it's very difficult to kind of come up with just like a canned set of like data import routines because there's always some like weird new quirk and, in um, you know, the situations you hit and then being able to like kind of, a, you know, you've got, you know, the tidyverse gives you a bunch of like, you know, read this sheet or read this Excel, or read this table. Um, but then on top of that, you can now, like, if that's not enough, you can program around. You can loop over every file in the directory or like maybe the file names are actually have data in them. And, and now you've got ways to get that, that data out into and, and a form that you can work with. Or, or, you know, if you're in Excel, like or in Google Sheets, it's not unsurprising to have, like, important data encoded in, like, the background color of cells or sometimes, like, the font style might actually be important. And giving ways to, like, get that data, put it into, like, an explicit column so that you can work with is, is really, really, really important.
0: So you talked a bit about being in a programming language, and I know that your native programming language that you do all your, at least, public work in is R. Yeah maybe you can tell us a little history of the R project just really briefly uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it. Yeah.
2: So I think, so R really came out of, um, of, of Bell Labs in the late 70s. I think really the, the challenge was, you know, a bunch of statisticians there. They had all these kind of Fortran scripts, which would do like one, you know, here's a Fortran script that doesn't, I don't know it. Here's a Fortran script that does a t-test and they, they needed tools to kind of like string those together And kind of provide more of an interactive environment. So you kind of ask a question and then, and then, you know, rapidly get an answer and and sort of a little bit in opposition to these kind of mainframe programming systems like SAS where you would like write, you know, every, if running a program on the mainframe, you might take you like a day or two to get the results down. So you basically wrote down every single question you might possibly want answered, send that to the mainframe. You know two days later you get eighty pages of output and then you kind of pour through that looking for the one bit you need the in, the intent with R was really to more have this interactive conversation with your data so you come up with a you know a little question you go to the data, look at that that gives you the next question and again and again and again so so really this this idea of you know creating a a ripple creating this rapid loop of asking questions and and getting answers, which I think was. You know, it sort of ties into the the lists that were popular at the time, but just really, you know, really different motivation from from most programming languages.
1: Yeah, I think recognizing the value of interactive computing, um, in contrast to some of the the, the batch history that you're referring to. Now, one of the flagship projects within the Tidyverse is dplyr, which provides a grammar of transformation verbs for manipulating data. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and particularly maybe compare and contrast uh, with common database languages like SQL.
2: Yeah, so I I think I'm going to be a little bit provocative. I think <laughs> Dplyr is like a better SQL. Uh, better not in general, but better for like, you know, SQL is massive, massive language, but kind of better for the data scientists. Like let's like, look, what are the the idea of deep to kind of uh, to identify like what are the major operations that you do all the time when you're doing data science make them like an explicit verb like you know you're selecting variables um you're mutating to create new columns you're you're filtering observations like make each of those steps like an explicit verb and then combine them together in a pipeline so when you are, like, solving some a data manipulation challenge. You've got a choice of, like, kind of, I don't know, five to ten major verbs that allow you to solve, like, 90%, 95% of your problems. You've just got to figure out how you, like, string them together and uh, align. Very, like, you know, very much inspired by SQL. Obviously, a lot of these things map pretty closely to SQL. But the thing that... Um, I think like one of the advantages to dply over SQL is that again it's fundamentally designed to be iterative. So if you've got a pipeline that does a select and creates some new variables and it does a filter on a group by, you can just add on the next step at the very end. Whereas with SQL, like depending on what you're doing, you might have to move it up somewhere in the middle. You might have to write a subquery. Like it, it's much, it's, I mean, SQL is just not, again, you know, it's designed to be a, a batch program. It's not designed to be interactive and, and iterative.
0: Yeah, the iterative piece makes a lot of sense. I agree with that. You know, the, the nearest analogy in SQL to doing things stepwise is everything gets wrapped up with the keyword width yeah. and becomes a common table expression, right? But then even the syntax of it, you know, the way you nest that is backwards, right? The width is backwards, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the use case of them. so So that makes a lot of sense for interactive uh, exploratory expressions where you're trying to actually explore what it is you want to ask, not just what's in the data.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it, a lot of the times with with data science, like the, the a, you know, a big part of the problem is just figuring out like, what exactly is the problem? Like what question, what, how do I make the, this vague ill formed question in my head, like precise enough that I can answer it uh, quantitatively. And that's just like a lot of intera- a lot of iteration, a lot of going down the wrong path and making mistakes and just slowly kind of iteratively building up a-, a better model in there.
0: Um I guess another distinction that we haven't talked about yet, but we probably should, is that the data model underneath dplyr is a data frame, not a relations. Mm. I think there's a lot of confusion in the world about what is a data frame.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of confusion in my brain about uh, what a relation is to Um, yeah, it's sort of interesting, like looking, you know, I am by no means uh, an expert in relational algebra. I kind of like read enough to know that that was not my thing, basically. It's sort of somehow like something different in like the justification of sort of relational algebra, like the the purpose of it versus a a data frame. And I, I think there's, um... I don't know. To, to me, I think like a data frame, again, it's this like rectangular structure. The thing that makes a data frame like fundamentally different from a matrix is that each column can be of a different type. Like if you've got a matrix, it's always like, it's normally numbers, but it could be strings or whatever you want to put in there. But in a data frame, you can have a column that's a string. You can have a column that's a number. You can have a column that, that's something else. And um, again, and those columns are kind of connected by the rows, which are. You know, typically, observations, and that means you can't like you, you know transposing a matrix is basically not nothing. It doesn't really doesn't really matter. It's just whatever convention you want to pick, but you fundamentally cannot transpose a data frame because then you'd end up with rows that have different types in them potentially, which just doesn't work.
0: Now, some data frame libraries absolutely have the verb called transpose.
2: Yeah, and R does too. I, I don't think it makes I don't think it makes any sense. Um, I mean, you can, you can sort of, or or it transposes into something that's not a data frame, which, you know, which is also fine. Um, And I think you've got this, um, you know, like when you're putting a data frame into JSON, there's this, and there's this sort of like, do you have like a struct of an array, a struct of arrays, an array of structs. It's mm-hmm. basically like which way, is it like row based or is it a row based data frame or a columnar data frame? And, and different, you know, there are different reasons, different, you know, like different data structures are good at different things. But I think for data science, where by and large, like your data is kind of static, like it's not constantly changing. It might be changing like every hour or every minute or every day. It's not changing like every millisecond what you really want to optimize for is like, how do you like compute the mean of a column? Something like that. It's not how do you make sure you can collect the data as quickly as possible. It's how do you like work with that data and compute on that data and having all of that data in a column. So it's contiguous in memory just makes like everything, you know, so much easier and, and faster to,
1: to compute with. Yeah, I'd throw it back to Joe and ask, you know, I'm interested in his take. How do you distinguish between a data frame, a relation, and are they both tables? How would you respond to that?
0: So um, we did actually write a paper about this. Aditya Paramasharan and Devin Peterson and myself and others at Berkeley wrote a data frame paper. We had to go back into the history of it, actually, which goes back to the S language, which I believe is the predecessor of R, um, and that's where the data frame was defined. And um, by that definition, um, you know, it is a matrix like structure in that the rows are ordered, which is not true of a relational table, which is just a set of rows. Yeah. Um, and the columns of course are ordered and typed as you say, Hadley, um, which is not true of a matrix, right? You know, matrix, have, all the cells in the matrix are the same type. Yeah. So on the, on the flip side, data frames are trying to do both matrix and relational things. So they let you do stuff like transpose. And to me, that's the biggest distinction. Because when you transpose something that had columns that were different types, mm-hmm. what do you get? And the answer is, well, you have to guess. Now you have new columns, which used to be a rows. And you have to guess the type <laughs> for each one of them. Yeah. And I think almost every data cleaning system has a type guessing or type induction uh, routine built into it that says, okay, I don't know what you're giving me here, but I'm going to try to figure out the type of every column. Um, and, you know, you do things in data frames like transpose and then transpose back. And actually the types don't come out the way they started in most of these tools. So mathematically data frames are not very satisfying because they're not closed under things like doing transpose twice doesn't give you back what you started with. So they're sort of in a middle ground and the way I like to think about it, and I think I'd be curious to get your feedback on this Hadley, but data frames exist for the cases where you're in between. So you're not a matrix right now. You're not a relation right now. You're trying to get to one of those states. And you need something flexible. You need a data model that's flexible enough to say, I know you're kind of a mess right now, but you're you're moving in the right direction. So that's what I view data frames as being good for. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of the use cases I see for data frames, I think still sit pretty squarely in that relational world. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's interesting to think about that, the flexibility there, even if it's uh, unutilized flexibility.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I think of, Data frames as being like the use the useful bit of the relational model because like no one real like very few people really understand the relational model right because and and like what a relation actually is and kind of use that maybe maybe you disagree with that I
0: mean I think a lot of our listeners uh, are probably very comfortable with SQL and relational data modeling like that's a very widespread skill
2: well yeah I, yeah 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 but do they actually understand like relational algebra and what the underlying relations and the, sure. the theory I mean, behind they have that. To.
0: If if you if you, you, think you think are going to count the number of rows that come out of a SQL query and know what that means, then yeah, you understand, you know, multi-set relational semantics. Uh any any SQL head knows what's going on.
2: Well I mean they know like I'm sure they know how to do like count select count star, but does that imply that they understand anything about that
0: if you know what happens when you take the join of two tables with duplicates and then you count the result.
2: Okay. Yeah. 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 No, that, that, that I'm not, that's a, yeah, that, that's actually a really, um, that's something I've been thinking about lately, because I think we're going to change the, some, the join semantics in dply away from the SQL view of like kind of, cause I, I, I mean, I, at least I think about joins in SQL as like a Cartesian product and then a filtering. Um, and so if you have like duplicate keys on the left-hand side and the right-hand side, you end up potentially with like an explosion of rows and like, you know, while that can be useful, like, and you can do really powerful things with that, like my belief is like 99% of the time when that happens while you're doing data science, it's actually a mistake. And it's very easy to like accidentally duplicate rows of data and kind of fool yourself that you've got more data um, than you actually have. And if you're really unlucky, like doing that, it's possible that that, that Cartesian product kind of like increases the number of rows. And then because you're doing an inner join, you like lose some rows. And if you're really unlucky, those two things like perfectly balance out and you end up with a data frame that has exactly the, the right number of rows that you expect. But. The rows in there are not the rows that you expect. Um, so I think we're we're taking some little steps to at least warn. I think when when that happens in, in DeepLar, because it seems like a common common problem.
1: I've certainly seen this this error case among among my own students, and I think in their case, like profiling visualizations and inspection of, of the output is certainly one important a line of defense against. Uh, you know, joins uh, that weren't well understood or sufficiently understood (laughs) when executed.
0: Yeah. This is one of these things where, like, if if you're coming in one direction versus the other, the vocabulary and the ideas you bring along, you know, um, are are just different. So, like, if you're coming from the SQL world, you probably know about keys and foreign keys, and you know that if you're joining on a key, then you're not going to get these duplicate issues. Mm -hmm. If you're coming from the messy data world, you might not even know if you have keys because you never saw this data before, and no one was enforcing that there has to be a unique key on each row, right? And so inevitably, as you say, Hadley, you you might think that your join is going to do one thing, but it turns out there were duplicates and you get all this kind of explosion of duplicates. So even the error messages you might want in the data prep world or in in the data frame world, might need to be different than you'd have in a nice, tidy, relational database. Yeah. Um, and it's it's sort of like, I think what I love about your work is the end goal is to have tidy data so that your statistics are meaningful. Um, and it's kind of like where your data is coming from and how you're going to get to your end goal um, dictates some of the tools and uh, tripwires that you have to worry about.
2: Yeah. I think the, I mean, the other thing that's just really tough with the vocabulary is like all of the. Like like relation table frame are <laughs> all such like generic words that everyone like abuse like if your discipline abuse very very precise meanings to them but as soon as you start talking to people outside your discipline like you can say one thing that means something perfectly precise to you and they hear something else that means something totally different but very precise to them which makes this whole thing challenging.
1: Well, I'm going to uh, sidestep the long tradition that statisticians and computer scientists have of, of picking different labels and then bickering about them, <laughs> and instead I would like uh, shift gears a bit at this point and point out that uh, Hadley's also made really valuable contributions to the field of data visualization. You know, a topic after my own heart, um, and particularly through the ggplot2 library. So, Hadley, um, can you tell us a bit about how ggplot came about and perhaps what the future holds in store for it? So, I think
2: uh, I mean so ggplot2 you know, really came from the same place as, as, as Dply, which is kind of me doing data analysis and getting frustrated with the results. Um, so GGplot2 really started while I was doing my PhD, where I was helping uh, PhD students from other departments analyze their data. And there were like a bunch of kind of, like, I you know, I was really into visualization, like read all the Tufty box, and kind of done all the standard Read all the Cleveland books, done all the kind of standard things that someone that was into visualization at the time would have done. And, you know, I'd get a data set and in my head, I could very clearly kind of picture, oh, I want to, you know, put this on the X's, X axis, put this on the Y axis, draw a line, put some, you know, put some points here, um, break it up by this variable. And then like getting that vision out of my head and into reality was just really, really hard just like Mm -hmm. felt harder than it should be like there's a lot of custom programming involved where it just felt like to me i just wanted to say like you know this is what i'm thinking this is how i'm picturing this plot like you're the computer go away and do it um and that that really and you know at the time and i'd also been reading the, the grammar graphics by by lee wilkinson and i got to meet him a couple of times and that really kind of I was like, this book has been like written for me. Like I love, I love the ideas in this book. I want to go and use it and there's no software. There. So, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: There's no free software. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think I
2: looked at, there was, I think I, I, I found like, the, you know, there was something you could buy that was like $150,000 or something.
1: And just, like, yeah, very accessible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so, you know, of course, I like, I uh, changed it a little bit um in the process of going from the grammar of graphics. Some, I think some things were improvements and some things were just because I didn't really understand what was going on in the, the book at the time. Um But I have to say one of the, the things that the, the book absolutely does not make clear is like one of the hardest parts of visualizations. It's like, Generating legends and nice axes like that is like the the grammar of graphics makes everything else easy because you've just got all these like little nice decomposable components. And then you come to like making a legend that people like and it's in the right place in the plot. I, re-
1: I remember reading that quote from you some years back and, you know, um, I felt yeah you were talking directly to me. I'm just like, absolutely. It's like doing some math- pure mathematical transformations of these beautiful things with the geometry of marks, you know, you know, people ooh and ah, and it's relatively easy. And just picking the, the right labels and points for axes and a nice legend layout it's just so finicky <laughs> getting that right and and having it do that in a way that generalizes so treating it as an algorithmic problem not a one-off design problem um yeah, yeah so surprisingly difficult yeah
2: and when you get it right like no one
0: notices
1: oh yeah yeah it's the classic ui dilemma that's the other thing like when you screw it up yeah. <laughs> people
0: notice but yeah that's right there are these great um, blog posts on the evolution of Google Maps and Apple Maps and how they did labeling. I don't know if you guys have seen these. Um, and when you see it over time and the refinements they do, it's remarkable. But if you look at any one state of it, you sort of go, "Yeah, this map."
1: Yeah, no, and yeah, like this is a place where yeah, cartographers have been struggling for centuries at doing some similar uh, concepts right. Um, and then when you move into an algorithmic regime, and you know, it has to work nicely on things you haven't looked at. Um, you know, that I really appreciate the challenge um, that those folks and other mapping teams are, are grappling with.
2: Yeah, and then you've got the, I think it's sort of a fascinating set of problems because then how do you even tell, like, not only do you have to do it, but you have to figure out some metric to assess whether or not you've done a good job so you can tell if you've accidentally made it worse or not. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's sort of a really surprisingly challenging domain.
1: So, so Hadley, over the years, I know in addition to ggplot, you've played with other, uh, I guess, experimental approaches like ggviz, which was more browser-based. Um, but I imagine ggplot is so successful, and really, I mean, it's tremendously successful in its uptake, that I wonder, does this become a straitjacket to innovation? Or, or how do you um, approach that, think about that issue in terms of what might come next in visualization versus not disturbing um, the really successful workflows that people have in place?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that is absolutely a challenge. And like, you know, it used to be that I could sort of be like the young maverick, just <laughs> like breaking things left and right and like, you know, really experimenting and like trying out crazy things that couldn't possibly work. Uh, and, and, you know, now because of that success, there's, you know, literally millions of people who use Pot 2 and that makes it very difficult to innovate because e- even now, like fixing bugs, like, you'll fix some bug that was just so obviously wrong to you. It turns out that someone like accidentally depended on that behavior and now you've broken their plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or several years ago, I decided like it used to be that GGPot 2 centered the titles above the plot. And at some point I was like, that's just, that's hideous. I'm going to change that to left aligned." them. And, and that made like a lot of people unhappy that their titles are now left aligned. Um, so, so I think now, you know, now, um, the, the challenge is really like, like when we embark on some new project, like how do we kind of carve that, carve that out? And there's this, this sort of constant tension that, like, I think ideally, like we, we want to be the people who create the success of the pot too. Like we, we want to be our main competitors. And then when you're designing a new system, you know, some of it is like thinking about how do we get people off the old system? Under the new system. It doesn't matter if the new thing you design is like five times as good. If people have to forget everything they knew about the old system,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe if it's 10 times as good, they'll be willing to do that. But if you can only come up with something twice as good, people aren't going to be willing to like, you know, have to relearn everything from scratch. So there's now this sort of constraint to like, like, you know, what's the kind of balance between like the improvement we can generate versus like how different is this new system going to be? Uh and I think that's a really you know, not it's not something like a younger Hadley ever considered. But I think it's now like something interesting that, that we what that we think about, an interesting challenge. Like when you've done good work, how do you help people move off that onto the stuff that you think is better?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, working in the you know, with one foot in the enterprise world, understanding sort of the the pain, but the deep importance of migration. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, sometimes it stands in the way of of more uh, unconstrained innovation, the fun running around and, and and maybe breaking more things than one should.
2: Yeah, and there's there's also this absurd kind of like I, I think you need like a little bit of there is like a little bit of kind of good arrogance that like I believe like changing this default is the right thing for you like you're gonna hate this in the short term but i genuinely believe it is better for you in the long term like that that is a really i guess i mean that's that's a really kind of challenging thing to know and to accept like i'm gonna do this thing and i know people are really gonna dislike it um but i think it's like the right decision and I'm willing to like spend some of my kind of social capital on that. and I'm willing to get a bunch of angry tweets about it because I think this is uh, really important. But, but, but now like being very careful to kind of do that deliberately and
1: mm-hmm. uh, not
2: accidentally and sort of think about like, how do you spend down sort of a little bit of the community goodwill and the goodwill that you've generated by creating good software? How do you kind of trade that helping people go through a little bit of pain to? Hopefully it gets a bit better.
0: So we've talked, I think, a fair bit about um, sort of usability for data scientists and kind of keeping data science on the rails. I want to poke a little bit at this question of, you know, data engineering, um, which is the theme of the podcast, and hear from you, especially in your studio experience, about um, does R get used in production environments where data is getting pumped through every day? And, and how do you see that happening? And how does it compare to other tools that folks are using for productionizing data pipelines?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it absolutely, it absolutely does. There are like big organizations who have built their data engineering pipelines. Uh, and uh, it's like, you know, totally possible and, and mostly using the same techniques of kind of, you know, isolation and containerization and APIs and JSON and all the, the kind of the stuff that you do in, in, in Python as well. I think there are two, like it's, it's possible. I think it is like a little, a little more challenging for, I think, kind of three reasons. So I think the first reason is that just like R as a programming language is vastly more flexible and dynamic than Python. And you can do all sorts of insane things in R that you cannot do in any other programming language. And like, it would be awesome if we could just remove that insanity from the language, but that insanity is also what makes ggplot 2 and dplyr possible and why they have such fluent interfaces, in my opinion. So that that's kind of like you know a pretty intractable problem. The language is just more flexible, and it's it's kind of bigger, uh, and the, the the core language is quite a lot bigger than Python, which makes it harder to kind of reason about, and understand the the edge cases
1: and optimize. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And optimization, optimizing R is yeah incredibly challenging problem. Um, the second problem is just like data scientists using R tend to have different backgrounds to people using Python. Like they have less formal software engineering training less computer science knowledge absolutely like fantastic domain knowledge but understanding how to write a you know code that runs day in day out without erroring or only creating useful errors for days or weeks at a time but that's just not something in their in their skill set um and so that there, there's a sort of like you know there is just a difference in mindset when you're writing exploratory data analysis code to writing like Production engineering code. Um, and I think, you know, you, you get that, you have to embrace that in Python to some extent as well. But I don't, but Python just has more of a sort of engineering mindset baked in. Uh, and then finally, just like the community, because of that second effect, like the, the community in R does not contain so many, you know, software engineers. There's not so, many, because there aren't as many people putting R into production, just the tools aren't as, um, mature. And I think that, like, hope is really, like, you know, at studio because we're, you know, a a company that has money, we can, you know, hire engineers to help make that tooling on the R side much more natural, because it's not going to organically bubble up from the open-source community or into the open-source community like it has in Python. And then sort of on my, you know, one of my interests is, like, how how do we help our data scientists become, you know, get better at software engineering? And they're never going to become, like, you know hardcore software engineers but how can they learn like the, the the really important bits and put those into their everyday life or even just understand what the different tensions are and why this thing that makes sense for you might not make sense in a production environment just having that that ability to, to sort of see through the eyes of an engineer i think is is really interesting important
1: thanks that makes a lot of sense um now looking beyond you know data visualization and pipelines and engineering We also like to ask something unexpected people might not know about you. So do you have a, for example, a go-to fun fact to share at parties?
2: Uh, I don't know. I feel like I've already given out all (laughs) too many podcasts to give you something unique. All I can do is give you like a recycled, um, uh, fun fact. I am like really, I am really into baking and, uh, cocktails. So those are kind of my things that I like to do in my, my spare time. And then I do like a lot. I do quite a lot of yoga now. That has been my, um, like during, during the pandemic, my yoga class moved outside and that has just been, that was like so awesome. So I do like three yoga classes outside every week. And that has been really, really, really great. Even in Houston in the middle of summer, it's been surprisingly (laughs) great.
0: Thanks for joining us, Hadley. It was, it was a lot of fun having you on the podcast. Again, we've been talking to Hadley Wickham, the chief scientist at our studio If you have a question or topic that you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at dataranglers at trifacta.com.
1: And as always, make sure to review and subscribe to The Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.